Welcome to MoneyWeb at Midday, the actuality news show, offering unique insights and in-depth analysis, featuring South Africa's top business leaders, newsmakers, and analysts for today's professionals. Your host, Jeremy Metz. Live every weekday at noon and then as a podcast, you're with MoneyWeb at Midday. I'm Jeremy Maggs. I've got 30 minutes of express news on developments here in South Africa and around the world, including interviews with business and political leaders, prominent newsmakers and top commentators. Today's program is sponsored by Peregrine Capital, South Africa's first fund to reach more than 100 times your investment since inception. It's Tuesday, the 31st of October. Coming up, the row over a major metro seeming inability to spend 1.9 billion rand a treasury grant. And then we'll get the metro's reply. What will constitute a win for South Africa at this week's AGOA summit? Why a major union federation isn't holding out much hope for the mini-budget tomorrow? A warning to business over a SAFTU protest in Cape Town? And why the Nelson Mandela Bay metro is feeling snubbed by SA Rugby? The political party Action SA says it's concerned that National Treasury has rejected a rollover amount of 1.2 billion rand of the 1.9 billion which was allocated to the Etiquini municipality. More now from Alan Beasley, the Etiquini caucus member. So, Mr. Beasley, what's the problem? So our concerns is twofold. Is the first concern is, is the inability of the Etiquini municipality to spend the grants in the last financial year. But what happens is when you don't spend a grant from National Treasury, you've got to actually apply for a rollover. Then Treasury assesses the rollover. But Treasury rejected 1.2 billion of the 1.9 million requests for rollover because quite simply the forms were, had been submitted in, incorrectly and inaccurately. And to me, that's incompetence at the highest level. I mean, the infrastructure in Etiquini is imploding as we speak now. You know, and water leaks are at a record high. There's E. coli. You know, I'm a surfer and I'm stronger. I can't surf at my beaches because the beaches are closed and it's like six weeks before the tourists. Yet that the municipality can't fill in the correct forms, you know. It's, and, and the reality of it is is the residents and businesses of Etiquini today are 1.2 billion rand poorer just because of incompetence. And I think that's a shocking state of affairs. So how then does Action S they plan to hold the municipality accountable? Well, first of all, we're going into a council meeting today, so we're certainly going to be raising this issue in the council meeting and, and demanding answers. And then we also sit in various committees within council and we'll be putting the same same question to the municipality and to the leadership. Where did this actually go wrong and how is it actually possible? But also what's interesting is there was a massive underspend on capital expenditure last year by $1 billion. Already in the first quarter, they're 53% behind budget. So they clearly, and, and it's quite interesting, there's an audit risk committee on Etiquini, and they've highlighted the inability of, of the municipality to spend its capital budget. So, um, yeah, so we're certainly going to be pushing hard in the council meeting today, as well as in the various committee meetings we send. And, and I'm going to send a letter to the municipal manager asking him for explanation of how this could actually happen. Could you give me specific examples of the projects that are so desperately needed that are now not going to be funded? 
Yeah, well, I think first of all, in Etiquini at the moment, we're losing 615 million litres of water a day. I mean, that's a massive amount. So it's 1.5 billion of this 1.9 billion was because of the floods that we had in April last year. So it was to help address all the issues with the floods. So half of that money has been withdrawn now. So that's going to impact on, on the water leaks. It's going to impact on the sewage situation. I mean, our rivers are full of E. coli. Our beaches are full of E. coli. And, and the sad thing is that ultimately has an impact on the tourist industry. And then a lot of people are employed by the tourist industry in, in Etiquini. And, and their livelihoods are impacted just because of the incompetence and, and it really is a sad, sad state of affairs. I understand that you're going to raise this in council today, as you've said, but uh, privately, when you've broached the municipality, what have they told you? Well, the, we only saw this letter, National Treasury, about three days ago. So we actually got sight of this letter from National Treasury on, on Thursday, Friday last week. So we actually haven't had time to engage with the officials. And um, so certainly today is going to be our first opportunity um, to do so. And this is not the first time, as you said, that it's happened. There were also issues in the previous year. So this talks to a pattern, doesn't it? No, most definitely. And it just talks to incompetence. And it's sad to say, you know, I'm a resident of Etiquini. I love my city, but just... The municipality and the ANC-led municipality just don't care about the residents. They really don't. Because if, if this has happened before, you know, they would make sure that the forms are actually submitted mm. correctly. I mean, it, it's actually bordering on criminal. Alan Beasley, do you or does your party have a specific plan to address the deteriorating infrastructure that you've just outlined to me in the municipality itself? What needs to be done well, in that respect? Well, the big issue that we're doing is we're actually taking the municipality to court in terms of the sewerage situation because we see that as one of the biggest impacts on, on Etiquini, just, you know, from a tourist, from a GDP, from from everything, you know. And whilst the sewerage situation is impacting on tourism, it's also um, residents, you know, and businesses. There's sewerage flowing through people's gardens through the streets and and that's so we're taking them to court on that one so that's that's our big focus area and that should be i mean we've already started the legal process and as we all know the legal process isn't a quick process but we're well in that and we should be filing um, our final affidavits before the end of this year in this matter i mean we did inspections of some of this the wastewater treatment plants and there was one wastewater treatment plant that was receiving 35 million liters of sewage before the floods it's now only receiving 15 million litres. So there's 20 million litres, and this is in the Durban, North Amgeni area, that is just going into the environment. And, and that's just a shocking state of affairs. It really is. Is this infrastructure that can be repaired or is an entirely new process needed? No, no, this one can definitely be repaired. But as I say, it just doesn't seem like the municipality and the leadership actually care about correcting it because if they did, they've had the funds. But we just believe there's no political will to actually um, actually fix it, you know. And the one thing that does bother us too is because National Treasury, I mean, they're one of the, the most efficient organizations that we have left in this country, together with the Auditor General and maybe SARS, and, and they're very specific on how the money is spent and how, accountable as the municipality is for this money. They don't just give the money and just say, go and spend it. They want reports. And I think, you know, back of our mind is just that the ANC-led municipality is saying it's, it's difficult to get our hands on this money because of the of how precise the Treasury is on how this money gets spent. So I think their focus area is on something else now, which, as I say, is very sad for Etiquini. Just a final question then. That 1.2 billion rand, is that money that is now gone or is there any way of recouping it? 
hopefully there is a chance, but um, looking at the National Treasury's letter, which I've got sight of, it doesn't say, well, um, please resubmit your documents. It just said it has been rejected. So on the face of it, it has been rejected. And um, I'm hoping the municipality are going to try and make an effort to recover this money. And what they actually also say in the letter, and they're quite specific, is saying that Etiquini must adjust its budget now because this $1.2 billion being taken away. So they're, they're quite specific, not saying, oh, we'll put in another application, saying you have to do an adjusted budget and they've got to send that through National Treasury, showing that there's $1.2 billion less in the, to be able to be spent this year on, on capital projects. Because obviously the municipality took it for granted that they could roll this money over. But now Treasury are saying, no, you've got to take it out of your budget. So it's going to have a massive impact on infrastructure in Etiquini. Alan Beasley, thank you very much. Well, not unsurprisingly, a very different view from the Metro. Let's hear now from Gugu Sisilana, who speaks for the Etiquini municipality in this short voice note. Etiquini municipality refused claims that it failed to spend 1.9 billion rand of a conditional grant allocated to fixed infrastructure and that it has forfeited the money to National Treasury. For the record, no money has been forfeited by the municipality to National Treasury at this stage. The municipality has met with National Treasury last week Thursday to discuss the grant funding. It is normal practice for National Treasury to engage with the municipality for clarification and to source additional information. National Treasury has recently issued a circular on strict cost-cutting and austerity measures in national and provincial government. This is not unique to Itawini municipality as other metros in the country are also affected by budget cuts. Importantly, Etiwini Municipality remains the leading metro countrywide in terms of spending of the USDG grants and is the only municipality that has spent its grants in full as at the end of June 2023. For the record, the municipality confirms that an application was made to National Treasury to roll over unspent conditional grants of 1.8 billion rand, of which 1.5 billion rand relates to the Municipal Disaster Management Grants for the flood damages. The funds for the Municipal Disaster Management Grants were only transferred to the city in March 2023, three months before the end of the city's financial year. And in terms of the grant framework, the municipality has 12 months to spend the grant. Furthermore, supply chain management processes have to be followed for each of the more than 700 projects. This process includes doing designs before the specifications can be developed. Even once designs are done, the service providers still need time to start the project. It was not a case of poor planning by Etiwini Municipality. It was simply impractical to expect the city to expedite these projects and to ensure they're completed in the 2022-23 financial year. It was impossible to spend 1.5 billion rand in three months, considering the processes that had to be completed. The rollover application for the Municipal Disaster Recovery Grant was partially approved by National Treasury with a rollover of 720.9 million rand being approved on 19 October, 2023. The city has submitted additional information for consideration by National Treasury, and we await National Treasury's final decision. Etiwini Municipality remains fully committed to service delivery, and we commit to fully spending these grants and fast-tracking the implementation 
of critical subsidiary projects. That's Gugu Sisilana, who speaks for the Etiquini municipality. We received that voice note just a short time ago. MoneyWeb at Midday, for all your up-to-date stories. Now, the general sense is that South Africa is going to have to play its diplomatic A-game ahead of the upcoming AGOA summit. The event gets underway this week amid, as you know, tensions between China and the United States. Joining me now, Chief Executive Officer of XA Global Trade Advisors, Donald McKay, a very warm welcome to you. Just how high are the stakes for South Africa? Yeah, they're, they're important for us to get right. The U.S. is a very important trading partner. Um, I think we're probably okay in the short term with Goa. Just the fact that they, they've still agreed to, to host the forum here is a good sign. But, um, but certainly the U.S. is important and we, we don't want to put a foot wrong. Baseline, what do we need to achieve? Yeah, I think we need to get a Goa extended beyond where it is so that it, you know, when it ends at the end of next year, it hopefully gets extended by, by at least five years. And I think that's an important thing to argue for. But really, I think our future lies moving beyond AGOA into a, a proper free trade agreement with the U.S., which would give us better access and I think just deliver greater economic value than AGOA has. Do you think it's going to be tense in the room? Yeah, I, I, I don't actually think so. I would, I, I would guess that, that um, the, the very professional politicians will, will keep a, a happy face on from both sides. But I, that doesn't, of course, mean that there is intention. I, I, I doubt it would be visible. So, no, I, I think it probably won't be. I made the point about having to play our diplomatic A-game. In terms of South Africa's non-alignment in the Ukraine war, surely that's going to be factored into the whole process. Yeah, I think it, I think it is. But, but I also think, um, for whatever reason, South Africa has, has largely removed most of the, the heat out of that particular problem. I think, however, what, what does concern me is what is not being said. So, you know, what is overtly being said might be one thing, but I, I'm not sure that that kind of deep down inside things that the U.S. is still particularly happy with us, no matter what they say. And that, that might still reflect in poorer levels of investment than we would like to see um, and possibly just a, a more difficult trading relationship than it needs to be. What, what do you think the things are that are not being said? Well, I, I, I think, uh, of course, the, the Israel-Hamas issue is, is not trivial either. And with the U.S. being very strongly uh, aligned with Israel, I'm not sure if that features and if it does feature how that will, how that will play out. But I think on the un- unsaid things, I'm still not sure that the U.S. buys um, South Africa's non-aligned stance, despite what they say. And, you know, we, we really do need the U.S. as both a trade and probably more importantly, as an ongoing investment partner. And if the U.S. is not actively selling South Africa, that may prove to be quite difficult. Uh, U.S. capital has lots of places it can go. certainly doesn't have to come here. So we would, we would need the help of the U.S. government to help attract those investments to South Africa. And the recent expansion of the BRICS grouping, is that going to influence South Africa's position in any way? I, I don't think so, largely because I think BRICS is, is mostly irrelevant, um, despite all the noise around it. I, I am a little bit concerned with, with some of the people that we're now keeping company with in the expanded BRICS group. But in reality, BRICS has done absolutely nothing. And I would think by adding the new countries, BRICS will do even less. And obviously, uh, China is going to be uh, 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 the big uh, proverbial elephant in the room. Yeah, I mean, that, that absolutely is the case. I, I, I guess, uh, you know, South Africa needs to keep the focus on, on the U.S. relationship and, and not let it wander off. 
but absolutely, the, the tensions between the U.S. and China um, are not are certainly not helpful. And South Africa very clearly has nailed its colors to the mast in support of the Chinese side of things. So that's uh, that's not helpful. But I would I would think for this session, hopefully that doesn't make an appearance. I'm going to leave it there as always. Thank you very much indeed for that crisp analysis. Donald McKay, Chief Executive Officer of XA Global Trade Advisors. You're listening to MoneyWeb at Midday. Big day tomorrow and the Congress of South African Trade Unions is calling for the medium-term budget policy statement to include include greater allocations for public service and an end to austerity measures. All well and good, but uh, how much wiggle room does the finance minister have? Kasatu's parliamentary coordinator, Matthew Parks, is with us now. And given the indications, Matthew, of potential budget cuts and also increased borrowing, how does Kasatu believe this is going to impact your constituency? In other words, uh, workers and public service representatives? We appreciate the fiscal crisis facing the state. We don't want to see the state collapse. But for us, it's about addressing the fundamental causes, not the symptoms of the crisis we're in. If we don't do that, we'll continue to tread water and things will get worse. And for us, the reason why the state is experiencing an expenditure level crisis is because transit is in trouble. Transit is critical to the mining, the, modif- the manufacturing, the agricultural sectors. So you've got to fix it. You've got to fix other dysfunctional SOEs and municipalities. Because these are the institutions which, which the economy needs to, to be working for businesses to thrive, to make a profit, to sell the product to higher workers. So I think for us, what we hope, we don't see it. And we understand that sometimes you're reprioritized, and that's fine. But as long as you reprioritize in a way which rebuilds the state, stimulates the economy, and protects the poor, it's fine to reprioritize what is tax and wasteful expenditure, but it needs to be done in a smart way, which will grow the economy. But if we're just going to have a lazy approach, like under the previous Minister of Finance, Tumboini, I'm just simply thinking that you can pickpocket what a nurse gets paid or what a teacher gets paid, and somehow miracles will happen and the economy will take off. That, for us, is recklessly delusional and is going to make matters worse. Pickpocketing a nurse is not going to get the trains to run on time. You will concede, though, that the finance minister has very little room to manoeuvre. No, indeed. I think that's for us why we need to do two things. One is to address the obstacles to unlocking the economy, like Transnet, getting the, ra- the railway lines to work, the ports to work, etc. And, of course, fixing ESCOM 2, um, which is critical for the, the entire economy. And I think equally for us, so the good question you're asking is about where do you get money for all these things we want to do? And for us, the most important, most effective way is to give resources to the South African Revenue Service, because basically, if you give SARS a billion rand, they'll go and collect 10 billion rand in additional revenue for us. Um, SARS has done well under the new commissioner to increase tax compliance from 61 to 64%. We need to have a conversation with him. How do we, in the next two years, go from 64 to 70% tax compliance? Those are necessarily new taxes, just enforcing existing taxes. And that would yield an additional 120 billion rand. So for us, that's the most critical way. Two-thirds of society is paying the taxes. One-third is abusing loopholes, etc., committing tax evasion, fraud, and so forth. Let's go after them, and that's going to give the money the state needs to pay down the debt, um, to plug the holes, etc. Matthew Parks, does Kasatu have confidence in the finance minister's ability to steer the economy, as you're suggesting, in a different direction? We, we have to have confidence. We have to get things moving. Um, we don't really have the luxury of time of giving up and folding our arms. At times, we are very frustrated with government collectively not moving fast enough to address the issues. And the fact that we've been having this discussion 
since 2019 just shows that government at time doesn't move with the speed we needed to move, given the many crises we're facing collectively as a nation. The difficulty, of course, Matthew, is that because uh, you're proposing, or how do, do you propose, to, to balance the need for increased public service spending, uh, which is would within your mandate and remit, I imagine, with government's fiscal responsibility. Uh, he he's sitting on a knife edge at the moment, isn't he? No, he is, and it's a. Uh, the saying is that you're in a perfect storm. I don't know if it's a perfect storm or a terrible storm. You've got many crises. And I think for us as well, you have to have multiplicity of responses. Because it's not just an expenditure crisis, it's a revenue crisis, it's an unemployment, it's a poverty, inequality, a load shedding, a cable theft, a corruption crisis, um, a stagnant economy crisis. But fundamentally, the only way to get out of all of these issues is to remove the blockages to the economy and get the economy growing. If that can happen, all the other crises will begin to cascade and be resolved. Um, but you're not going to grow the economy by squeezing public servants, for example, like nurses or doctors, for example. That's not going to grow the economy. What it might actually do is actually worsen the state because you then find that skilled public servants like nurses and doctors or teachers will simply give up and they'll move to the private sector or they'll move overseas where they get better paid um, and less stressful jobs. And that's going to further worsen the brain drain. So we have to have a very surgical and nuanced approach and not just simply a blunt instrument. Just a final question. There are some indications from commentators that the finance minister might also use the speech tomorrow to lay the groundwork for an increase in value-added tax. So for us, we've had engagements, and for us, it's a no-go area. We don't think it'll happen. Uh, but for us, it's not going to yield the revenue that you that the state would think it wants. VAT is a regressive tax. It hits the poor the most. Um, it damages growth, etc. I think for us, <clears throat> where we do want to see revenue be collected for the state is just simply by enforcing existing tax compliance. We don't need necessarily have new taxes if we're not enforcing existing taxes. Because if you bring on board new taxes, all you're doing is to hurt those who already are complying. When in fact, you actually should go after that 36% of taxes which are owed to the state which are not currently being collected. And that, for us, is a fundamental solution. And if we look at Europe, and I know it's a bad comparison, the European tax compliance rate is about 90%, and we're at 64%. So I think for us, about how do we move it upwards, um, that will support tax morality, that'll be more fair and equal. That's a real way to gather revenue for the state in a much faster way. I'm going to leave it there, Matthew Parks. Thank you very much indeed. You're listening to MoneyWeb at Midday. I want to stay with Labour Matters and the South African Federation of Trade Unions has issued a notice to NEDLAC announcing a Section 77 protest from today. That's under the Labour Relations Act. I want to get a view from John Boerter, Chief Executive Officer, in fact, Joint Chief Executive Officer of Global Business Solutions. So firstly, how should employers be navigating what I think is a delicate balance between, on the one hand, protecting their business interests in very tough conditions right now and also respecting Respecting the Section 77 and workers' rights. Employers, I think, first of all, need to be empathetic and understand the context within which these rolling mass action events are taking place. You know, I think the context there really, Jeremy, is firstly the very, very low levels of economic growth. And um, we work at NEDLAC when uh, we were negotiating there in the past on what we call a labor elasticity equation for every 1% growth in GDP, there's a half a percent growth in employment. And of course, we are literally just limping along at about 0.4%. So these forms of action are taking place in a very emotional environment. 
of unemployment, of inequality, very high Gini coefficients, as you know, in South Africa compared to the rest of the world. So from an employer response point of view, the need for empathy and, and leadership who have a propensity to understand and care, uh, I think is a very, very important point of departure, Jeremy. And the second issue is really more of a, a legal preparedness issue to understand where the boundaries are at law and then to have your your legal team on standby for interdicts and the like. Let's pick up on the empathy quotient if we can. Uh, let me suggest to you that all well and good, but it would be very difficult under those circumstances that you've outlined for organizations to maintain that degree of empathy, given that so many companies, particularly smaller organizations, are battling to keep their head above the water. Absolutely. The reality is, as you're pointing out, you know, every everybody, all stakeholders are, are under the hammer at the moment. But without the ability to understand the context or to acknowledge it at the very least, you're already going to be on the receiving end. Because when people act in emotions, Jeremy, as you know, the amygdala disconnects. So the old part of their brain, their fight, flight, freeze kicks in. People don't think rationally. And that's when a lot of these let's call them criminal acts and uh, vandalism and assaults take place. Now, I'm not suggesting small, medium-sized companies will avert that purely by being understanding or empathetic, but it is always very, very worthwhile to have dialogue, to communicate, to try and understand context. So against that backdrop then, how would employers approach the whole issue and conduct a risk assessment? Well, the fact is workforce design comes into play here, firstly, because, you know, organizations, I think, just generally are starting to take note of this increasing trend of, of rolling mass action. They're starting to subcontract, outsource, use flexible labor, hybrid labor, and automate and mechanize. So, so I think just as a general principle, many businesses are starting to, let's say, restructure and re-engineer in order to mitigate the impact of these disruptors um, and to have more flexible cost structures. But in terms of these specific events, Jeremy, you know, I think the first thing is, again, dialogue to try and understand on each shift, on each day of the rolling mass action, who's probably going to be there and who's not going to be there. That's where trust comes into it because you want and you need accurate information. You know, you need to build up reserves and, of course, cross-skilling. And, and the use of temporary labor becomes very important. Notwithstanding that, though, John, uh, you also spoke about having legal prescripts in place. What's the approach in that respect? Well, that's a very, very important matter, um, Jeremy. So as part of your business continuity plan in this environment we're in now, we have to be sure as employers that we understand that any form of action has to be within the boundaries of acceptable law and practice, which means no illegal acts, no criminal acts, and also with mass action, Section 77, like SOFTU, you know, they can't pick it at the employer's premises, for example. So they can participate in marches, etc., but it's not directed at the employer that they're employed by. It's a socioeconomic issue around the austerity measures that the Minister of Finance is trying to put in place. It's about low um, economic growth. It's about the rising costs of living. So Organizations may very well find themselves, if they are on the receiving end of untoward conduct, having to get an interdict 
uh, in the labor court and get an interdict against that type of action and also have security companies and, and other forms of protection available. John Boat, I'm going to leave it there. Thank you very much indeed. MoneyWeb at Midday for all your up-to-date stories. Finally, the victorious Springbok rugby team is back in South Africa and is going to go straight into a series of parades. Their tour will start in Pretoria, Johannesburg and Soweto, concludes at the FNB Stadium on the 2nd of November, that's this coming Thursday, then Friday in Cape Town, Durban on Saturday and concludes in East London on Sunday the 5th of November. But the Nelson Mandela Bay Business Chamber is saying, hang on, what about us? Here's Denise van Hastien from the Chamber on why there is a need for the call they've just made and is the city feeling snubbed? Well, it can't be that a metro where 1.5 million people or fans of the Springboks live and the fact that um, the leader of the South African rugby team, Sia Kodisi, and South African rugby director, Rati Rasmus, come from here, that uh, we're not included in the tour. So I think we, we are shocked that we haven't been included and we're hoping that our appeals will sway them to change their minds. Have you been given any reasons? Um, no, we haven't. You know, So we were very surprised when we saw that, that we weren't included on the itinerary. You know, and, and when you look at the history of rugby as well in this part of the world, the Black Rugby Club started in Nelson Mandela Bay area in the late 1800s. So we've got a, we've steeped in rugby history. So we find the decision very surprising. So what specifically then are you asking for from the rugby authorities? Well, we'd like them to include Nelson Mandela Bay in the itinerary when they go around the country. Um, and also if you look at uh, 2019 when the, the Springboks uh, won the last uh, World Cup, they came down to Nelson Mandela Bay and they went to Zwede, which is where um, Sia Kolisi comes from. And the enthusiasm there was, was massive, but they ended up not being able to go any further in the city to engage with fans. And they had promised to return in March 2020, but unfortunately uh, COVID happened, which also derailed that. So we've been um, on the short end of, of the store. Explain to me, Denise, how important inclusion is in events like this for the community of, of the metro. Well, I think now more than ever before, we need unity, we need inclusivity, and we need hope. Nelson Mandela Bay, I think, has been very much marginalized over many years. And, um, and that goes back to the apartheid era where um, there was very little infrastructure investment that took place in our bay. And even today, only 5% of total investment that comes into the country comes into Nelson Mandela Bay. So there needs to be more focus on our bay. We, we're very strong from a manufacturing sector. Almost half of the country's automotive employment is here. We've got 50% of the world's uh, mohair comes from here and also we're the sixth biggest export of citrus in the world. So we're not a Mickey Mouse town. You know, there's a lot of opportunity here. We've got two ports. That potential needs to be untapped. So you've sent the letter. You haven't heard from the rugby authorities yet, uh, albeit that uh, it's still, uh, there probably still is time for that. What else is the, is the chamber going to do? Or is that, is that as much as you can do? Yeah, so we have had an acknowledgement of our letter, so we are hoping that there will be a more detailed response. We have been talking to, to various stakeholders, and there have also been other groupings in North Mandela Bay that have also uh, voiced their concerns. So we are hoping that the joint voices, that, that these voices will be heard.
are members of the business chamber, for instance, prepared to put their money or their hands in their pockets and maybe help with sponsorship here? Well, I mean, we could certainly approach them for that because I think if you look at the fact that Sia Kulisi, this is his hometown, you know, it's a travesty that he's not coming here. And I think, you know, for the workers in, in this part of the country, it would mean a lot to, to be able to share in that, that mm-hmm. win. You, you mentioned about the metro often being excluded. Are there steps that the Chamber believes can be taken to ensure that all regions of South Africa feel equally included and represented in celebrations and events like this? It, it's not just an issue, I imagine, that is, is confined to your particular region. There are probably other cities and towns that might feel the same way. Yes, I think others may feel the same way. But I think in terms of Nelson Mandela Bay, we've probably suffered from a coalition politics longer than most other metros dating back to 2016. And I think because of that situation and the instability we've had here, it's almost like everyone's forgotten about us. And that is translated in a, a lack of inclusion in border strategies. And we've seen it as well, even when you look at the country's uh, focus on, on logistics, which is probably a bigger crisis now than the electricity crisis. The focus is all on, on Durban port and, and on the rail corridor that goes there. But the rail corridor, which comes from the north to the south, um, is a vital one for the auto industry and also for other exporters. And the fact that we've got two ports here, that needs to be properly leveraged. So that's an example of that exclusion. Denise, I hope you get your parade and let's see what happens. Denise Van Heistian from the Nelson Mandela Bay Metro. Appreciate it. Well, that's uh, one city that isn't happy. And we're also reading that the province of Limpopo is expressing similar sentiments. Other stories on our radar as we finish the program today. Israel is pressing deeper into the Gaza Strip with tanks and soldiers as its ground offensive expands and Gauteng and particularly Johannesburg residents being warned to brace for the possibility of severe thunderstorms across the province for the entire day today. Today's program sponsored by Peregrine Capital. Invest in 25 years of performance. Invest at peregrine.co.za today. Peregrine Capital is an authorized financial service provider. T's and C's apply. MoneyWeb at midday. We are live at noon weekdays, then as a podcast. Thank you for listening and goodbye. Listen to the daily live stream of MoneyWeb at midday or download episodes on moneyweb.co.za, the MoneyWeb app, Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Or follow MoneyWeb News on social media for more updates. MoneyWeb, your trusted source for business and investment insights.